Even before the COVID-19 pandemic disrupted law enforcement practices throughout the United States, policymakers had been re-examining criminal justice policies and exploring alternatives to incarceration. Some of these alternatives, such as drug courts and so-called problem-solving courts, typically involve collaborations with social workers, case managers, and physicians. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Nathaniel Morris, a clinical fellow in psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine. Dr. Morris has written a perspective article about working at the intersection of healthcare and criminal justice. Dr. Morris, to begin, how large is the U.S. criminal justice system, and what's known about the health status of the people who are in it? So the U.S. criminal justice system, we talk about it as one system, but it's dozens, hundreds, thousands of systems across the country, whether that be police departments, courts, jails, prisons. Sometimes people will cite different statistics to talk about just the vast scope of criminal justice in the United States. So one example would be kind of the number of people incarcerated at one time, which is around 2 million people or so, depending on what timeline in jails and prisons. But a different way of looking at it too, for instance, if we're just looking at incarceration, is the number of admissions. And so there's, before the pandemic, something like 10 million admissions into U.S. jails every year. And so that's why I often hesitate to use the phrase criminal justice system or what people call the criminal legal system, just because there's so many different systems across the country. But to answer your question about the health status, particularly with regards to mental disorders, substance use disorders, there's a wide variety of research that just shows the high rates in terms of prevalence of mental disorders, substance use disorders, and other chronic conditions among people who are incarcerated in U.S. correctional facilities, typically at rates that are much higher than the general population. And research even suggests that the experience of incarceration, people have shorter lifespans. And there's even more emerging evidence in recent years about the effects of incarceration on secondary effects, such as on people's family members and communities as well. So you write in your perspective article that collaborative or problem-solving courts have become a popular approach to connecting people facing criminal charges with community-based treatment services and supervision instead of incarceration. How do these programs work and who's typically eligible for them? Problem-solving courts or collaborative courts have emerged over the last couple of decades through this concept that's often known in literature as therapeutic jurisprudence. And so what that means is Historically, courts have focused pretty exclusively on narrow legal questions. What's the law broken or not? What's the punishment? Or what are disputes that we need to resolve? But over the years, this concept of therapeutic jurisprudence is that courts and the law are social forces that can have therapeutic or anti-therapeutic effects on people when they interact with the criminal justice system. And so these are specialized courts that often will focus on different problems or areas and ways. So when people are charged with crimes, an example might be somebody with an opioid use disorder. Let's say they're struggling with addiction to heroin and they are either repeatedly arrested for possession or selling or breaking into a car to fund that habit or something like that. They then may be, rather than traditional kind of, you go through court, you're incarcerated for weeks or months or years, they might be offered to join into a specialized docket, such as a drug court. And in that court, they may be connected with a multidisciplinary team. And so the team usually is a judge, attorneys on both sides, probation or parole officers. There's often treatment representatives, such as like case managers or social workers. And then they have a recommended treatment plan from the court, which is attending counseling like AA or NA, doing regular drug screening or alcohol screening going to clinical visits, attending court sessions on a regular basis. 
And over time, if someone completes the recommended treatment plan, whether that's over months or years, the goal is that they might then what they call graduate from the court, which then means not only can they live in the community during this time when they're connected to those treatment services and often live at home or live in a residential program, but also at the end, if they do graduate, might have their charges dismissed or reduced. And so that's kind of the general format of one of these types of courts. Again, similar to our discussion about the criminal justice system, there's so many different types of problem-solving courts. There are ones that are focused on substance use. So those are like drug courts. There are ones focused on mental health. So those would be mental health courts. There are veterans courts, courts focused on homelessness, domestic violence, and kind of surveys suggest that there are hundreds, if not thousands of them that have developed across the country. And historically, many of them have focused on kind of what people might call kind of lower level offenses or nonviolent, quote unquote, offenses. Um, but more recently, there are many courts that might actually accept people who do have some degree. Typically, you're not seeing folks in these courts charged with very, very, very serious crimes like murder or things like that. But you might have people charged with assault or things like that who are in these courts and might have tailored treatment plans or management plans depending on their particular situation. So you say in your article that medicine can often only do so much in these circumstances. So what are the limits or the limitations of problem-solving courts and drug courts? In the article, I wanted to focus on the experience of clinicians through these courts. I think there's been a lot written about from the legal standpoint. And one thing I particularly found challenging when I first came across these courts or began learning about them or having patients who were involved with them is depending on what articles or what you find in the literature, you can find very, very different opinions about problem-solving courts. Some research suggests that they reduce recidivism, they increase connection with treatment services, they decrease people's substance use or things like that, and that they're great ideas. Other articles you might read suggest that these courts are coercive, they are connecting people to treatment only through criminal justice, they do not work, they are bad ideas. And so I think it's really hard to get a handle and that's why I wanted to write my article, particularly on the experience of clinicians and the mixed feelings or challenging scenarios that can come up when trying to help patients who are going through these systems. And so talking about medicine can only do so much. I think it's something that many health professionals across the country experience with many of our patients, whether they're involved in courts or not, is that, for instance, say you take someone who has schizophrenia, medications are incredibly helpful and can be, in many cases, life-saving for some patients in that situation. But that's just one part of the equation. Housing, poverty, employment, education, all of those are so, so important, particularly when it comes to criminal justice involvement. And so taking care of patients involved with problem solving or collaborative courts, I have found that, of course, medicine can be very, very important. And many people end up in the criminal justice system, often because they do not have access, unfortunately, to treatment and their medications are disrupted. They've never seen anyone for an evaluation. They don't have adequate access to addiction treatment. And these are reasons people end up getting kind of swept into jails, prisons, or other you know, criminal justice settings. But even though healthcare is often necessary, it's not always sufficient, right? And so you can only do so much when patients don't have housing or if they don't have a job or they don't have income. And so that's one thing I think that I've seen kind of with problem-solving courts or helping patients in terms of one limitation is that there's so many different aspects that these courts often are tasked with resolving some of kind of the broader failures in society. And I've been quite struck, even with the limitations within healthcare, when I see problem-solving courts, the multidisciplinary teams are often quite frustrated, understandably, at how limited 
even in the community, if we can connect people with treatment, there's limited clinics, limited numbers of psychiatrists, limited residential addiction treatment options or other access to medications for addiction treatment. And so I think these courts, regardless of what an individual's opinion might be of them, are faced with kind of these Herculean tasks of trying to meet the very many different needs of the people who are participating in them. And I guess the last thing I would just add on that point is, even though in 2014, there was an estimated 125,000 or so participants in US drug courts, and that is a big number. Again, to put that into context, this is kind of a drop in the bucket of our broader criminal justice systems across the United States, where they're, again, putting 10 million jail admissions in, in comparison to that. These are just kind of one small part. So on top of all that, you also say in your article that the clinicians involved in these programs can feel conflicted by pressures of dual loyalty. How do you react when you're torn between what's best for your patient and what the court wants you to do, including when officials perhaps promote what you think are harmful treatment approaches? That's an important point that I think you had mentioned earlier. So often in terms of which clinicians are involved in these courts, in my experience, it's most often case managers, social workers, counselors. It's pretty rare that I've seen at least to have physicians involved directly with problem-solving courts kind of on multidisciplinary teams. For multiple factors, that's often physicians can be expensive or hard to find particular treatment, particularly rural courts and things like that. But I think the experience of providing patients with healthcare who are involved with these courts, just as you alluded to, the dual loyalties can emerge in all types of situations. And so when we talk about dual loyalties or these kind of competing obligations between our duties as health professionals to our patients, but then to these kind of broader systems, these are dilemmas that come up for health professionals in all sorts of criminal justice settings. When people work in jails, when they work in prisons, as health professionals, particularly with these courts as well. And so that central question of, are you torn between doing what's best for the patient and then doing kind of what you have to do or what you're asked to do by other, whether it's legal authorities, a judge, an attorney, the head of a correctional system, or thinking broader society too, right? And so those can become very, very real. And I think one of the challenges that I have come across too is that in healthcare settings, I by no means want to suggest that health professionals are the solution to these entire issues. And, and in many situations in my training and clinical experience, I've seen health professionals and probably myself at times as well, who have stigmatizing views towards people involved with the criminal justice system. And often it's easier to ignore these topics and just to not talk with patients about their legal history, not think about these issues that they're grappling with and just focus on the lab value, the medication you're ordering. But I think I've learned over time that I do think that we miss patients' experiences and we misunderstand their lives and their stories and what is affecting them if we are completely ignoring criminal justice involvement. And so I think there is the challenge, and that's part of that dual loyalty, is how much we lean in and how much we seek to help our patients who are involved in these systems while also can we remain completely objective or should we remain completely objective as health professionals? And I think that's something I still grapple with. And I'm not sure I have the perfect answer given there's so many different types of dual loyalties that can arise. How do you respond to the suggestion that treatment-based courts, although they're well-intentioned, ultimately perpetuate systems of criminalization? Do you see ways of being part of the system and still pushing back against some of its problematic features? I've seen a number of articles, a number of colleagues who I've spoken to, even patients will bring these concepts up where on the one hand, there's the benefits of saying, okay, rather than just incarcerating people, throwing them in jails or prisons, and then saying, okay, that's going to fix their opioid use disorder, or somebody with schizophrenia, that's going to help the situation. Here, we're connecting them with treatment services, we're 
all working together, collaboration, right, between people in the criminal justice systems and health professionals towards the best needs of these individuals. Those are, in many ways, positive developments. I am aware and do definitely understand also the criticisms, right? And many oftentimes agree with the criticisms of, is somebody being arrested and then put into a particular court, is that the best way or the ideal way for people to end up in treatment? And I think ideally, probably not. If somebody is experiencing symptoms of schizophrenia or substance use disorder that lead them to get arrested, is it better to prevent that and to think about what are the laws that we have that lead to people being criminalized or what are the availability of crisis services or alternative options compared to arrest and incarceration or involvement in the courts? And so in many ways, I've seen a lot of good that has been done. I've seen patients who have had good experiences of having charges dismissed or reduced or not being incarcerated by these courts compared to traditional criminal courts. But at the same time, I think that central question that I wrote about in the article of why at the end of the day does criminal justice involvement continue to be the default pathway to treatment for so many people? And even if these courts continue, should they be the default option or should they be the last resort? And I think that's something that I think we should continue to think about because in many situations, the lack of treatment services, the lack of employment, housing, income, poverty, all of those factors are often what comes into play and why people are swept into the criminal justice system. And so I think in an ideal world, we wouldn't need these courts as much as we do. But just as you brought up, where do we go from here, given the growth of these courts? And what can we do to best support patients and people's well-being before they get arrested or to prevent their need to be arrested? So finally, leading from what you've just been talking about, what additional roles do you see for physicians in reducing mass incarceration, either at the individual physician level or at the policy level? What kind of steps do you think are possible? I think one reason that kind of drove me to write this article and to think of as if these issues were coming up in clinic for me and working with patients is regardless of as physicians or as health professionals, our individual opinions or politics or what people may or may not, whether in work or at home, think about with the criminal justice system, we seem to be undergoing a pretty large shift in criminal justice across the United States in recent years. And whether that's if you want to look at legalization of recreational cannabis in numerous states, if you want to look at the rise of problem-solving courts, if you want to look at just the recent protests about defunding the police or just rethinking the ways in which criminal justice is applied, I think it's important that health professionals are part of this conversation. And that's part of why I wanted to write the article to look at what does it look like right now for people who say, okay, we don't want people with mental illness or substance use disorders in jails or prisons, which can be so traumatic and harmful for people's lives. Well, what do the alternatives look like? And these are what they look like right now. And that's what's happening in the real world. And so for physicians and health professionals, I would say multiple roles can be played, whether one is just providing evidence-based compassionate care to people who have been involved in the criminal justice system. And it's sad to me that that alone is such a baseline because so many people who I've seen in community settings who have been arrested or incarcerated, either those experiences are ignored or not talked about with their health professionals because they seem too sensitive. And many people don't want to talk about that. Or even as health professionals, many people look down upon people who have been arrested or incarcerated. And so I think one is a medical community, we can do a better job to connect with our patients, to understand their lives, and to advocate on their individual behalfs. But then two, more broadly, in terms of these broader national and societal discussions about criminal justice and incarceration, I think health professionals should be part of that conversation, talking about 
what are the public health impacts of incarceration. And as there's going to be national discussions about public safety and incarceration, what can we contribute as health professionals, as physicians? I think we can speak up and talk about not only our experiences with our patients, but also what the research and evidence shows. And I think on the individual level with our patients and on that broader level in terms of advocacy, that, that's what I would hope to see uh, moving forward with physicians and other health professionals. Thank you, Dr. Morris.